thanks for joining us and thanks for singing along with us today. It is great to be with you again. My name is Corey. If we haven't had the honor and privilege of meeting, I would love to meet you and get to talk to you a little bit about where we are as a church. And uh, yeah, it's just great to be with you guys today. We started a conversation last week uh, as we move into the fall. We're shifting gears. Maybe, you know, we've noticed that it's gotten a little bit cooler, which is nice. Gotten back to some different schedules and some different things uh, that are typical in school year and work times and getting away from some of the warmer weather. And so we've shifted gears as well as a church into a new conversation um, that we started last week. And as I started this conversation last week, I said that this was something that was kind of a labor of love for me. This is a topic topic that is something I think a lot about, I read a lot about, I'll watch people as they have conversations about them, uh, whether that's, you know, YouTube or something like that, and just processing what, what does it mean and what does it seem like or what's going on for our church and for the church as a whole as we look at the way that we interact with culture. And what's going on and how do people see us? And so I started last week's conversation, I just asked you this question, what tension do you feel between the church and with culture. And when we asked that question, I said, when I was growing up in, in youth group and as a teenager, as a kid, uh, maybe even in middle school, the difference was the line that was kind of drawn was that I was a follower of Jesus who was in church and, and doing that kind of thing, and I was in youth group regularly. And then what we would say is maybe the culture would ask us to do sinful things. And so the culture would say, you know, you, you can go ahead and you can drink if, even if you're underage, you can do drugs, you can sleep around, all that kind of stuff. And there was that line that was drawn where we would go, we don't do those things. And today there's some of that that still exists, but also we've recognized that there are movements and ideas and things like that that show up. And we have to kind of figure out, people look at us and go, so which side is the church on? And even in that, there would be different churches that are on different sides. So now there's kind of this scale of like this church will be on this side of this issue or that church or this denomination or that denomination. And we have to find where we're at. And the culture kind of looks at the church and goes, so where are you going to land? And how are you going to figure this out? And how is the way that you interact with this helpful or not helpful? And people have even looked at churches and said, well, depending on how you interact with this topic is whether I'm going to stay or go or join or not join. And so now the tension is not just right or wrong, right? It's topics and movements and ideas and ideologies. And what do we do with that? And I shared these statistics. I'll share them uh, one more time, just a little more briefly today, that 80% of practicing Christians have a positive view of the church. Now pause, right? That means 20% of practicing Christians don't which is interesting. Only 21% of non-Christians think the church, think of the church in a positive way. So we're losing that battle with almost 80% of people. 85% of Christians trust the Christian pastors in their community. Less than half of non-Christians feel the same way, and millennials are twice as likely as boomers to think their church is detached from the real issues facing their community. So millennials, myself, those probably generations that are younger, maybe a little bit older, more likely to look at church and say, you've actually detached, you've become further distanced from the issues that we see in our culture. And I would say that that, that causes a problem, right? Are we actually engaging with culture the way that we're supposed to? And how the culture sees us engaging is, is kind of dictating their relationship with us. And so what do we do with that? Then the question boils down to this, how can the church impact this trend? And I said last week, it doesn't mean that everybody is going to automatically agree with us. 
But here's kind of the premise I would say is that even if people disagree with us, they should be able to trust us. They should be able to look at us and say, you're, you're authentic humans. That even if I don't agree with where you fall on this topic or that topic, that I at least look at you and I say, you definitely believe what you believe, and I can see that by the way that you live. And that's not the case given the statistics that we have. So here's my goal as we come through this. this is week two. We have three more weeks of this. Here's my goal. For us as church people, as GFC or any other church people that are finding this, followers of Jesus, we reevaluate and go, okay, how am I interacting with culture? What am I doing? And am I helping to heal some of this perspective of the church? Or am I helping to further distance it? And if you are not a follower of Jesus, or you're not a church person and you're listening to this, my question would just be, if we looked more like Jesus, right? That's the title. What if we looked more like Jesus? If we actually looked more like Jesus and the things that we're seeing in scripture were actually true of people that claim to be church people and followers of Jesus, would that change your perspective of the church? And so I hope this finds some people that aren't just followers of Jesus, but people that are maybe deconstructing, maybe processing what that means. Maybe they grew up in church and they don't go to church anymore, and they're thinking about whether they want to go to church, or they maybe even been church hurt, and just say, what do I do with this as I continue on my faith journey? We're going to start today, we're going to bounce around in, in Luke a lot, okay? So we're going to go to three different locations in Luke, and we're going to go to one uh, a passage in Ephesians. And so we're going to start in Luke chapter 6. In verse 32, you can always open your Bible. You can turn on your phone or your tablet or whatever. You can also uh, scan the code that's on the back of your Next Steps card if you'd like. And that will take you to our next, or sorry, our follow along page. You'll get all the verses, all the notes. You can submit a prayer request. You can submit a question. Um, so you feel free to follow on there. But Luke chapter 6, verse 32, we'll have the verses up on the screen for you as well. This is what it says, Luke six thirty-two. If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. Verse 33, he goes on and says, If you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. So let's pause for a second. So says, why, if you love the people who love you, he says, that's easy. So if you do good to the people who do good to you, that's easy too. He says, even people who don't say they're followers of Jesus, even people that don't claim that they're church people in our context, right? Even those people do that. So reading between the lines, he's saying, if you say that you are a follower of Jesus, you should be looking differently than this. There should be a distinction between what you're willing to do, what I'm willing to do, and what others are willing to do. Verse 34, and if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. I think this verse probably makes like Dave Ramsey twitch a little bit, right? Like, why would you lend to someone who can't? That's not lending. That's giving, right? If you're lending to someone who you're not expecting to pay you back, you're giving. Say, well, even if you lend, even if you give, even if you provide for somebody else, don't expect a return. And that's not the way we think. All of these things so far, right? I'm going to love people who don't love me. That doesn't sound like it's a lot of fun. I'm going to do good to people who don't do good to me. Again, not great. I'm going to lend people who can't pay me back. Okay, well then how am I going to have anything? It, it's counterintuitive to what we normally think to be true. And then he goes on in verse 35. He says, love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. So now he goes, not even only just people who don't love you, but people you would maybe even consider enemies. Then your reward from heaven will be very good, 
and you will truly be acting as children of the Most High, for he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. We, I'll say, I'll say I. I won't include you. I'll just include me. I ignore that first part of the verse. Like, why would I love someone who's my enemy? That doesn't make any sense. What does that even look like? Right? So if I'm in a war, I'm not going to love the other person so they win. That doesn't make any sense. So why would I do that? What does that actually mean? Do good to them, lend to them, expecting to not be repaid. But here's the qualifier, and this is what gets us. Anytime there's a qualifier like this, it gives you no room for an exit. There's no, like, yeah, but that you can kind of stick in here and be like, okay, but it doesn't apply to me. It just says, then you will be, your reward will be, from heaven will be great, and you will be truly acting as children of the Most High. Because when you do these things, you're going to be acting like God. Why? Because he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. See, those two words are not two words that we would want to describe us, but they do. We all would say, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a church person, like you would recognize at times we are selfish. At times we are self-centered. At times we are not willing to consider someone else's feelings. We are unthankful for what we've been given. And then wicked, that's just, you know, it's kind of a Bible word, but it's just wrong, right? We do the wrong thing on purpose, even though we know better. And so when we fall into that category and we go, but this is the way God has treated us, well, now there's no yeah, but where we get to get out of what he just said in those previous verses. We have to take them to heart and say, well, this is the way God has interacted with us, so that's the way that we are called to interact with others. And then he finishes this little passage in verse 36. He says, you must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. Here's what I would say as I've processed, and I'm not saying this is a blanket statement for every church, but this is some of the conversation I've heard and some of the conversation I've seen lived out over my life um, in the way that the church interacts with culture and interacts with people. And I would just say it this way, that we've chosen tough love rather than sacrificial love. You think about the difference, right? What's tough love? Tough love is when you have to do something to someone or for someone, and you're like, I'm doing this, I don't like it, but it's because I love you. Right? You're going through a difficult thing. So if you've been a parent, you understand that. You have to do something difficult. Your child doesn't understand to make sure that they get what they need or they, they are loved in the way, even if they don't understand it in this moment. And sometimes the church will treat people outside of the church or outside of Christianity this way. And we look at them and we say, well, we want to love you, but we're going to love you. We're going to point out your sin. Right? We're going to make sure that you know what you did. We're going to make sure that you know this has to change in order for you to be this. And so we, we do this in a place of, yes, those things need to be pointed out, and we need to recognize sin and not ignore sin and bring it up and process it. But at the same time, we've done that out of this sense of, I'm just going to love you, but it's going to be tough love. Instead of saying, I'm going to sacrificially love you. I'm going to do good to you when you don't do good to me. I'm going to love you when you don't love me. I'm going to lend and not expect you to repay me. And I'm going to do that because that's what God has done for me. There are times when tough love is a reality, and it has to happen. But too often we are seen as those who are excited to almost tough love somebody and say, if you don't like it, then leave, rather than sacrificially give of ourselves to these people. And we just spent 13 weeks (laughs) going through 1 Corinthians 13, 
talking all about this idea of love, right? And so as we had this conversation, we know a lot. We learned a lot, right? We learned a lot. If you, do, if you weren't there, go back and watch it through. It was great. I think for, it was great for me for sure. So just processing that. But there's two things that we learned and we kind of kept coming back to is that sacrificial love expects nothing in return. So there's not, it's not an if, right? I'll love you if this. It's I love you even though. So there's not necessarily reciprocations. Like, even though you don't love me, even though you don't do good to me, even though you can't pay me back, I'm going to continue to love you. And then we would also say that sacrificial love is undeserved love. That it wouldn't be something that we could earn or that we could justify or that something that we asked for even, but we were just completely undeserving and God loved us in that way. And that's what sacrificial love is. And so if God did that to us, then we are called to do that to other people. I'll give you an example of this, right? We're thinking about this like tough love conversation and sacrificial love and how we process that and where it can get like really nitty gritty. I was listening to a podcast a couple weeks ago and they had a conversation that was all about tipping. Okay. So like when you go to uh, a restaurant and you have to give a tip or there's situations and, and in America, this is more of a thing than in other cultures. Okay. So this, one of the people that was on this podcast, he's from New Zealand He's like, we don't tip at all. He's like, this is so stressful to me to have to figure out when am I supposed to tip and how am I supposed to tip and how much do I give and all of this stuff, right? And so they get into this conversation and they said, what would you do if you were on a first date with somebody, okay? So you go out to dinner with them and you're sitting down, you're eating, you have a great meal and they offer to pay. So you're like, great, you, that, that's very nice of you. You pay, that's great, right? And you notice as they're like writing down like what the tip is that they are a terrible tipper, okay? Like extremely bad, like 2%. And, they, and you recognize like this person, like the person who was your server was not a bad server. Like they did their job that maybe they weren't exquisite, they weren't over the top, but they were sufficient and they did a good job, right? Deserving of more than maybe a 2% tip. And the question was, are you going to bring it up right away? Are you going to go, wait a minute, we need to get more than that? And they went through their options like, well, maybe I would kind of like let the other person leave and like I would pull some money out of my pocket and like throw it on the table real quick and then like walk away, right? So they don't know. And they were like, when, when would you actually bring this up? When would this be a conversation where you're just in this relationship, you're having this conversation and all of a sudden you realize there's a major character flaw, maybe to, uh, according to you, and there's in this situation with this other person, what would you do? And there's tension there. We all recognize that. That's not an easy situation. The thing is, sometimes with the world around us, we are so quick to be like, you are a terrible tipper, right? We get really excited about it. But what would be the fallout from that relationship later? Well, maybe that conversation would go really well. And maybe that person would say, you know what? You're right. I'm sorry. Or maybe it was a mistake, right? Maybe they wrote the wrong number. Maybe they whatever, but chances are it would also create some tension in your relationship in that moment. And all of a sudden, maybe to that person, you become the kind of person that just points out flaws very quickly. And if you're in a beginning of a relationship and you're in a relationship with somebody that's pointing out flaws very quickly, that may not be the relationship you continue to be in. And so there's this tension where we go, yeah, we notice there's things that we need to have conversations about, but how do we do it? And do we do it in a way that's loving and caring and moves somebody to a place where they need to be what I would say simply is the conversation that we're going to have this morning is that loving people is loving God. When we decide to love people and we decide to do it in a sacrificial way and we decide to set aside some of that tough love at times and we decide to set aside some of the finger pointing and we decide to engage with that person as a 
image bearer of God, that it would change the way that people see us and it would change the way that we see them. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, we're going to go there next. This is what Paul says. He says, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. This is a very important verse because he just tells it as it is, right? He says, we were dead in our sins. What, what can something that's dead do? Nothing. And so he says, it's only by God's grace that you have been saved. He goes on in verse 6. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Verse 7. So God can point to us in all future ages of, as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ. Here's where I think we have to get to, right? Sometimes we do this. Sometimes we think we would never be when really we once were. It can be easy to look at other people and see the mistakes they've made, see the actions they take, and we would go, I would never do that. I would never make that decision. I would never make that mistake. I would never be that person. But really, as followers of Jesus, what we have to do is turn around and go, but we once were. We once were dead. And some of us, if we've grown up in church, I got to go speak at a youth event uh, on Friday night at the church where I grew up. I spent the first 20 years of my life in that place. I think there was a pew that I always sat in. We got married at the front of that church. It was like going back in time, right, just to be there again. And I don't remember a day where I didn't go. And so what's easy for for people like me probably is for us to think it through and go, there was never a day I didn't know Jesus, right? There was, I just was always taught that and there's never a day. And I forget sometimes that there was a time where I didn't actually, I was still dead in sin. Like I wasn't actually alive in Christ. That time does exist in my past. And even though it might look differently than someone else's past, it's still something that I can't look at and just go, I would never be that person, or I would never be in that place, or I would never make that decision. In fact, I should say, I once was there. And we all know when we go through difficult times, uh, you know, you go through something that's a struggle, you go through something, you go through a loss, you go through a job change, whatever, and somebody comes alongside of you and says, I've been there, I know what that's like. It changes and you feel a sense of camaraderie with that person because you can be honest with them because they get you. And what I'm saying is if we looked at people that don't know Jesus and we said, I once was that person, there would almost be this sense of maybe camaraderie where we would say, I want to love you into the pattern that you're supposed to be in rather than being where you are. Because what plays in our minds is, right, we, we might say, well, I'm a new creation, right? Read Romans. New creation. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but we forget sometimes that we can love people out of the pattern of this world rather than just staying away from the pattern of this world. And when we do that, we say, I get you. I understand you. I once was that person. And that changes the way we see them instead of being someone that never knew what that was like. And here's the problem, right? The us versus them never wins anyone to Jesus. And this is not the popular thing, right? In fact, I think a lot of the culture today wants us to be the us versus them. There's a lot of that happening. And it it wants us to pick the side, right? You're supposed to pick your side. 
You're supposed to let people know where you stand on it, and you're supposed to let people know that disagree with you that you disagree with them, right? So pick your side and then figure that out. But that doesn't win anybody. There's no conversation. There's no nuance to that. There's no learning. There's no growing. There's no collaboration. It's just a separation. Yes, we are to look different than the world, but we're also supposed to love the people that don't believe like us or look like us or think like us. So what does that actually look like and how do we continue to do it? In Luke 18, we're going to go back to Luke. Luke 18, starting in verse 9, Jesus tells a story. It says, Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. He said, Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. How would you like it if despised was in the beginning of your job title? That would be great, right? Probably if you worked for like the IRS or the DMV, the despised DMV person. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 11 and 12. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I am certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. So you've got this public prayer, right? Pharisee standing out, praying out loud, literally saying he doesn't like the people down the street from him. And he's not like them. And he gets to make sure that he fasts twice a week and he wants everybody to know that. And I give you a tenth of my income. I want everybody to know that too. Jesus switches gears in verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. In verse 14, it says, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, when we read this verse, it's tempting to go, oh, that stupid Pharisee, like, what is he doing, right? He's, I would never do that. Again, never be, right? I would never be that. I would never go pray out loud on a street corner, or if I had to lead prayer in some small group or something like that, I would never raise my hands and be like, I am so thankful. I am not like Jimmy over there or something like that, right? I don't do this. I don't do that, right? We would never do that. And at the same time, we don't necessarily want to, maybe we don't necessarily want to identify as the tax collector because he's the despised tax collector, so we go, well, I wouldn't do what the Pharisee did, but at the same time, I don't want to be known as that guy. So like, how do I find my space in this passage? Or how do I read this into? Where do I identify with this story? But here's, here's the phrase I want us to think about. And here's the phrase I want us to worry about. And it goes back to verse nine. I'm going to put it up here again. And it's going to be in yellow. Just say, like, I'll just read it again. Then Jesus told this story to some who what? Who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. That's a terrifying phrase if that describes us. And I would say a lot of times, not all the time, a lot of times, this can be the way we interact with other people. We go, I'm saved, I'm taken care of, I'm good. Those people out there need Jesus. We look at them and we scorn them. We look at the way that they sin and we see it differently than ours and we scorn them. Forgetting what? Forgetting we once were. And we would say we would never be. 
And so what the Pharisee gets wrong, here's how I would help us understand this, that our righteousness is not a badge of honor, it's a testament to grace. We are seen as righteous because of the blood of Jesus. When God looks at us, if we're followers of Jesus, he sees the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, and he sees that atonement. He doesn't see our sin anymore, and we're considered righteous alongside Jesus because of Jesus, not because of us, right? Not because of what we did, because we were dead in our sin, and so dead things can't grow. Dead things can't just become alive again, and so we go to that space of we need Jesus to make us alive. He raises us, and that's where we get it from, but we can't forget that it's not based on us. The Pharisee prays. He goes, I, I, go to, you know, I, I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth. What do we say? We could say, well, I go to church all the time, and I serve on this team, and I'm in a small group, and I make sure I give, and I make sure I do this, and I'm at this person, and my kids go here, and like all of that stuff. We can name all of those things and think we're building righteousness, but if we miss the fact that we once were like the people that we're maybe trying to separate ourselves from, we're missing the point of the gospel. That we would use that as motivation and as an understanding to look at those people and say, I know somebody that you need to know. To say, I recognize that I was dead, that I recognize that I needed Jesus, and I want you to know Jesus too. And it changes completely the perspective that we have on the world around us. Listen, we go back to those, back to those statistics for a minute. And I'll say this again, like if people just saw us as people that genuinely loved them, even if we disagree the perception of the church would change. It doesn't mean they have to agree with us. It doesn't mean they have to see every issue the same way. It doesn't mean that. But they should know that their neighbor down the street who loves Jesus loves them. And their neighbor down the street, if they needed something and they needed help or they needed prayer or they needed whatever, that that person would be there and ready to give it. And too often we give off this vibe of, I'm, I'm just going to keep myself separate. I don't want to engage in that way with the people around me. I want to go to one more place in Luke. Luke 23. Let's flip over a couple of pages. Starting in verse 32, it says this, Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross, and the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said in verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And the, as the, and the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. This is obviously just a few verses of the crucifixion account. I, I want us to like pause here and just think about the setting, okay? If you've read all of this story, you know what all led up to this. We're not going to dig into that today, but just think about where we are in this moment. Jesus is nailed to a cross, and he's literally surrounded by sin. So on either side of him, he's got a criminal sin that is being killed for just, justly in their judicial system, justly killed for what they had done. He's got people in front of him that are mocking him, making fun of him, spitting on him, sinning at him. He's got people watching who convicted him of a crime he didn't actually do that led him to the place where he's going to be killed on this cross. And then he's got soldiers at his feet gambling for his clothes disrespectfully. He's got sin on all sides of him, surrounded by it. Now let's pause for a minute. If you found yourself in a place that was just surrounded you with sin, what would you do? You might leave. 
You might run, right? You might just kind of cower in a corner maybe. I don't know. We would think about how do I get away? And what Jesus says is so important. He just says, Father, forgive them. When the God of the universe was surrounded by sin, his response was not to reject them. It was to pray for their forgiveness. It was to identify with their need, with them as humans, and ask God to forgive them. Here's my question. What if we prayed more for people's forgiveness rather than their conviction? What if we looked at people and just said, I'm not going to ignore, right? This is what I'm not saying. We're not ignoring sin. We're not ignoring the fact that repentance needs to happen. Like, that's part of the gospel. We have to show people, we have to live in a way that says, I needed it. That's really the first place to go, right? Not you're a sinner. I was a sinner. I had a problem. Jesus fixed it. Do you want to know about that? Right? That's the conversation. It's not ignoring that there's something that needs to change or something that needs to happen, but at the same time, it's not convicting them necessarily. It's praying for their forgiveness and offering them the forgiveness we've received. You know, I I remember uh, today's September 11th, right? So that automatically, for many of us, will jog our memory to where we were if we were alive at the time and what we were doing and all that kind of stuff. I was in seventh grade, okay, when that that happened. I remember uh, the principal coming in telling us what was happening. I think I was in English class. I remember the room. I just can't remember. In a small Christian school, it's like they used every room for everything. So I don't remember necessarily the class, but I remember the room I was in. I think it was English. So they told us, and that didn't really make a ton of sense as I was like 12, I think, at the time. And so we, we go home and we figure it out. And the next day is Wednesday. And Wednesday nights for me, we had youth group where it was more of like a Bible study, not so much games and things like that, but we did more Bible study stuff. And we had a long time where we prayed. We prayed for a lot of things, right? We prayed for the victims. We prayed for the families. We prayed for the firefighters and the police officers and the EMT that were still either trapped or looking for people or going in or trying to put the fire out. We prayed for a lot of people. Now, maybe I just don't remember it, but I do not remember anyone praying for the men who were responsible for what happened. And in a logical sense, right, we would go, well, why would you? Look at what they did. They destroyed buildings, they destroyed lives, they destroyed families. Why, why, would we, why would we pray for their forgiveness? But Jesus did. So even in that most difficult circumstance, what do we pray for? How do we see that? Do we pray just that, because I know these prayers, I heard these prayers, that we would find the people who did it. I heard those prayers. I remember those. And that they would be brought to justice. But do we pray for God to forgive them, even if they are brought to justice? It's a different perspective. It doesn't make sense. But it's what Jesus did for us. And here's, here's what I would say, right? Compassion and justice don't need to be at odds with one another. So just because God needs to be a righteous judge and justice needs to come when there is sin present doesn't mean that compassion can't be there as well. I'll tell you one more story before we wrap our conversation today. In 2015, there was a church, a small African-American church in South Carolina. And one day, they had a prayer meeting. I think there were about 10 to 15 people there, if I remember the account correctly. And there was a visitor that came in that day. A young guy came in with a backpack. And he was there for about an hour with the prayer happening and the different Bible studies going on and everything. And at the end, he, opened, he pulled out a gun from his backpack and he opened fire and he killed nine people just at church. So a couple of years later, right, they go through the whole judicial system. They have to do, do all, the, all the due processes and things like that. And the victim's families finally got 
to address that man. Really, he, I think he, now he's only like 26 or 27. I think he was 21 at the time. So they get to address him and have a conversation with him. And famously, one of the people that came, whose wife was killed that day, came up to the stand and he just said, I forgive you. And he said, I pray that you meet Jesus and that you turn your life over to him. What could he have said in that moment? He could have said just about anything. He could have told that person that he wanted them to go to hell, and we probably would like look at that person and go, that's a little harsh, but I get it, right? It doesn't surprise me that he would say that to that person who took his wife in cold blood for no reason. But he looked at him and he said, I forgive you. He says, I, I, I want you to know Jesus. That's my goal in life. Guys, we, we don't want to be the people who are just seen as those who will point fingers and point conviction and point out flaws to other people. We don't want to be seen as that. I'll change that. Some people do, and it's wrong. It's not the way that the church should be seen. The church and followers of Jesus should be seen as people who identify with other sinners because we were in the same boat. And we say, I know someone who you need to know, and I want to share him with you because I was where you are, and I don't want you to stay there. I want to love you enough. I want to sacrificially love you enough, not necessarily tough love you enough. I want to sacrificially love you enough that you would look at this and say, maybe it's worth it. Because when we show up and we just start pointing fingers and we just choose sides and we say, I need you to know what I'm angry about or what I say or what the Bible says or whatever, whatever phrase you want to use there. When we start there, it just pushes people away. It doesn't build that sense of trust. It doesn't build that sense that we have what's best in mind for them. It doesn't build a relationship with them. And yet Jesus, even when we were dead, even when he was surrounded by sin, his desire was forgiveness. And so I would say this. If the church looked more like Jesus, forgiveness would be our first priority. Let me say this again, just so it's clear, right? Not saying we ignore sin. Not saying... We don't recognize that repentance needs to happen. Not saying that that's not a massive part of the gospel, but I am saying that when you want someone to be forgiven more than you want them to be condemned, that's a different conversation. And too often we're found on the wrong side. And so I would challenge us just to continue to see people in that light. Recognize we were dead in our sin. And we didn't, get to, we didn't have to stay there. And that's something that other people need to know too. And that changes the way that we will interact with other people. Let's make forgiveness at the forefront of those relationships rather than conviction and condemnation. Let's pray as we get ready to sing one last song together. Jesus, we thank you that you forgave us. And you continue to forgive us even when we actively choose to go against what you teach us. We thank you that you continue to offer that forgiveness even when we're not good at following you. And God, I pray for those of us who would claim to be followers of Jesus and have a relationship with you, that that would be evident to other people around us and that we would be the ones who are looking to share that forgiveness with other people. I pray that we wouldn't be known simply as the people who choose a side or the people who want to point out flaws or the people who want to bring conviction on others, but that we would offer them the same hope that we've been given. 
I pray that our church as a whole would be known for that. That people would even drive past and they would be reminded of an instance where they interacted with one of us and they didn't even, maybe they're not a follower of Jesus, but they got this different vibe, this way that we would look at them and we would love them sacrificially and not just out of tough love. I pray that we would just love people because you love people. We're grateful that you did that even when we didn't deserve it. In Jesus' name, amen.